Welcome to our fourth podcast, Judicial Policymaking and Decision-Making 101. We're excited to inform you that in this podcast, we are going to discuss policymaking and decision-making in both America and Sweden. We are talking about both countries in order to conversate differences and highlights about each. Have you ever wondered if courts in America made policies? Well, they do. The more interesting question concerns the connection between judicial policymaking and its policy outcomes. There are several theories regarding the decisional behavior of Supreme Court justices, and it concerns attitudinal theory, which is basically only making decisions based on their view rather than listening to others' others' views or ideas. In a study, it was demonstrated that the judicial attitudes can possibly explain the votes of the justices in America. The concern of decision-making was raised into attention after the New Deal transition had taken place because there had not been much emphasis on judicial behavior prior to this era. So the question whether attitudinal theory correctly explains the decision-making of the justices in prior times still needs to be answered, which we will discuss later. But first, we are going to talk about our opinions on if attitudinal theory takes part in policymaking. Personally, yes, I do think that attitudinal theory takes place in policymaking because in most cases there isn't a specific policy in place because nobody can agree on just one policy because every judge has their own opinion. I also think that attitudinal theory takes part in policymaking because I think it's pretty much impossible to avoid some sort of bias um, in anything in life and obviously judges try to avoid that as much as possible but I still think that it does take place and like we talked about in class the political perspective of how judges make their decision that perspective um, states that judges use their own political views and personal beliefs whether that's like how they grew up how they were raised what their own views are of various things in life to um, influence their decision making in america judicial review of administrative procedures helps to ensure that public officials exercise their discretionary authority in compliance with congressional and executive professionals. The relationship between a judge's own policy preferences, their decision to support the agency's position has been well documented at the Supreme Court with regard to the appellate courts. The policy direction of a court's decision is a product of the court's identity and the particular policy preferences of the administration in power. When determining case outcomes, the partisan attitudes of individual judges are to be evaluated within the policy context of the decision. Partisan congruence assumes that judges appointed by Republican presidents are more likely to support conservative policies than Democrat appointed. Likewise, Democratic appointees are assumed to support liberal policies more than Republican appointed persons. If that's true, judges appointed by Republican presidents should exercise greater deference in cases involving a conservative agency action, and judges appointed by Democratic presidents should exercise greater deference in cases involving liberal action. There are some people in America who have reasons for optimism and pessimism in American policy making. Some reason for optimism came from a study done by a man that goes by Leo. A great strength of this study is the selection of Texas as their case study. Texas is characterized by a conservative political landscape that has recently enacted criminal justice reforms that are typical kinds of reforms being put in place in many states across the country. These reforms are tough on crime and has public backlash. The Leo chose a sample of Texans who are more likely to vote. The Leo found a a lot of support for rehabilitation and alternatives to incarceration, even among conservatives in their sample. 
Another strength of this study is the fact that they asked questions that are just like the types of reforms that are actually being implemented across the states. They measured the respondents' support for rehabilitation and alternatives to incarceration for offenders convicted of nonviolent crimes and almost all of the criminal justice reforms that have been implemented or are under consideration at both the state and federal levels will benefit only this population. That is why these findings should give us optimism that politicians in Congress and across the states have a decent opportunity to enact new reforms and create new policies. Some reasons for pessimism are due to Thilo's study also. It finds support for contemporary reforms that seek to channel nonviolent minor drug offenders into alternatives to incarceration. These reforms are a huge step toward lessening mass incarceration. Critics have noted that they are not going to take us far because more than 53% of all inmates in state prisons were convicted of a violent offense and many convicted of nonviolent offenses are repeat offenders. So reforms that are only trying to release nonviolent, non-serious, non-sexual offenders will make only a small dent in the overall incarceration rate. If we are committed to undoing mass incarceration and returning to the relative level of imprisonment that America had before the 1970s, policymakers need to debate releasing a meaningful number of inmates convicted of violent offenses too. Now, what about Sweden's policymaking? In Sweden, crime rates are, are lower in different areas than America. Their reactions to crime are also different than America. According to Hoffer, Sweden follows the saying, being tough on crime and tough on criminals will not decrease the incidence of crime to any substantive degree. However, it will, with certainty, increase the size of prison populations and is also very likely to increase the public's feeling of insecurity. I quoted that because it really differs from America. America focused on punishing criminals to decrease crime levels, but is ending up to form mass inc incarceration. So the question is, which is better? In a study done by Hoffer, he studied crime rates in Sweden, and they are less than half of the crime in America. Does Sweden's policy make more sense, and do you think that it works better? I think that Sweden's system makes a lot more sense because focusing on rehabilitation and help more than focusing on the sentencing and punishment keeps prison rates low and also helps the person who is committing crimes become better, and it lessens the chance of them committing more crimes. I think the facts prove, them prove themselves. Sweden has a lower incarceration rate compared to America, and obviously their system seems to be working and more effective overall. In 1980, a few women argued that clients of prostitution should be criminalized. Their claim was on the idea that prostitution comprised an unequal power relationship in which men take advantage of women. At first, the claim was rejected by the parliament. Two decades later, the Swedish parliament was the first in the world to adopt a new policy on prostitution that criminalized the purchase of sexual services, but not the sale of sex. This was made possible by advocates who worked toward this policy change, and also the policy change resulted both from gradual additional shifts in the problem framing of prostitution and from individuals' strategic actions. Sweden works towards their policy changes, and the change eventually happened, which is relative to America. Policymakers often have to deal with scientific uncertainty, and one good example of that is how Sweden's policymakers are dealing with climate change and its policies. Bert Bolin was the first person to bring up climate change in 1975, and policymakers did not pay attention to the issue at that time. But finally, they began the process of creating this policy, but first had to go through phases. The first phase ranged from 1975 to 1987, when climate change was not on the political agenda, but scientists worked to frame it as a political issue. 
The second phase ranged from 1988 to 2000 when climate change was put onto a political agenda. The third phase was from 2001 to 2007 when the prominence of climate change as a political issue increased until it was framed as one of the most important political issues in Sweden and that is ongoing. The most common approach to manage scientific uncertainty in the policy process in Sweden was to focus on knowledge and politics. In order to understand policymaking under uncertainty, it is not enough to study how policymakers use scientific knowledge to make decisions or what knowledge is available. We just need to pay closer attention to the interplay between use and production. The framings of scientific uncertainty affect policymaking in different ways, depending on if it is connected to understanding the problem or what to do about it. In the 1990s, Sweden went through a deep economic recession accompanied by a massive increase in unemployment and a rapidly growing budget deficit. The effects of the crisis were clearly visible during the years that followed, yet no comprehensive assessment of the development was available as the decade approached its end. This upset many Sweden politicians because they saw what, wa what has happened what was happening and knew something needed to be done. So in 1999, the Swedish government appointed a welfare commission, which was a team of academic researchers who were assigned the task of drawing up a balance sheet for the development of welfare in the 1990s. They then worked to reform what was happening. This was the beginning of a new policy. The results highlighted a great influence of macroeconomic conditions and policymaking for the welfare of vulnerable groups in society. Now we are going to talk about decision-making in America first. When making decisions, judges consider many things associated with dissenting from the majority, but they also take into account the likelihood of reversal by the Supreme Court or any higher-up court. Since there is a slight chance of a Supreme Court reversal, the Supreme Court serves as a cure for attitudinal behavior for court judges. The Supreme Court has become more tolerant of the policy-making. In return, it has led to a decline in the surrogatory grant rate. The Sertori Grant is petitioning to get a case heard by the Supreme Court. Decision-making requires the use of reason in order to make sense of what to do. Figuring out what to do, what policies to select, what information limits are, and providing proper use of reason in the acquisition, interpretation, and evaluation of the relevant information. This process is guided by justice. There simply is nobody who can have com complete information prior to making a bit big decision in any situation. So. What we can do to manage is try to op optimize the information environment by degrees of crime and make a decision off of that in America. America also uses something called the deductive theory, which is where they first consider the facts, categorize the situations, decide which legal rule should be applied, apply the rule, and then make a final decision. Deductive reasoning has its limitations, though. Judges sometimes dislike it because the facts can be novel, more than one rule and category can apply, and rules often change. They also have the realist theory where they consider the facts, compare with facts from previous cases, determine similarities, make a decision, and formulate a legal rule. Judges often also use discretion in making decisions. Lately, research on judicial decision-making has started to consider the influence of specific factors on ideological voting, which means strong conservatives are likely to take conservative positions on new issues as they arise. In a study done by a man named Bartels, found that both issue-related factors and the court's choice of legal standards alter ideological voting by individual justices. A study was done by a person named Baum, who stated that he concluded that special judges tend to feel greater confidence in their judgment than their generalist counterparts. Because of this confidence, they are likely to be more assertive than generalists in their policymaking. 
Now in America, there is something called a plea bargain, where the prosecutor tells the defendant to plead guilty to a lesser charge in exchange for a more lenient sentence or an agreement to drop, drop another charge. Who makes a decision to give one of these and how does one decide what they will bargain with? The person who makes these decisions is the prosecutor, and the defendant decides if the bargain is good enough to be taken. They usually discuss that with their attorney. Usually it would be foolish not to accept a plea bargain unless the defendant really thinks they can plead not guilty and win. Plea guard bargains became a thing when the system started to get backed up with cases and trails. It is designed to help move people quickly through the system. One of the biggest questions is of plea bargains is, does it really serve justice? Lastly, we are going to talk about decision-making in Sweden and show you the differences. Sweden's court system is much like America's. There are district courts, courts of appeal, and the Supreme Court. If one doesn't like the outcome of the district court's decision, they can appeal and go to the court of appeals. Their decision-making is similar to America's, except Sweden does not do plea burdens. Anyone who is accused of crimes must go to trial. Based on research, unlike America, there is not much concern on judicial attitudinal theory in Sweden, but there is concern on cases that involve risk and uncertainty. Sweden expresses their worries on the decisions made with cases that have high risk or uncertain information, which I talked about earlier in this podcast. In Sweden, there has also been concern on child protectiveness. Decision-making related to the protection and welfare of vulnerable, neglected, and abused children is among the most debated responsibilities. These difficulties are attributed to insufficient knowledge, limited opportunities to make well-judged risk assessments, lack of cooperation between families and social workers, tendencies to cling to first impressions and underdeveloped knowledge. Laypersons have a great importance in Sweden child protection. In 1902, the first law of child protection legislation was put into place. They called it the laypersons model because the laypersons acted as both decision makers and executives. After this, trained social workers gained a stronger voice and became more common in practice in the larger municipalities. Elected representatives in Sweden who challenge each other with different ideas regulate governance through the political system. Professional governance is carried out by an expert group with special knowledge that makes them suitable to develop models and make decisions using their own discretion. Decision making in child welfare can be divided into two categories. Benefits with decisions on who is entitled to what goods and services and layperson's influence in child protection and sanctions with decisions about society's obligation to protect individuals from difficult circumstances or from self-harming or dangerous behavior. That is an example of how Sweden makes their decisions. So now we're going to talk about some highlights of each of the systems in America and Sweden. And I think that a highlight of each system would be that America has their plea bargains, which lowers the in-prison rate of every prison in America, but Sweden also makes sure that every person goes to trial in a sentence formally and has specific systems to keep criminals from repeating their offenses. Sweden focuses more on rehabilitation and help than sentencing in prison time like America does. I'm going to use an example of this, of what I am talking about. So, for instance, if a woman named Anna, who has beginning symptoms of Alzheimer's disease and decided to get in her car and drive even though she has her license revoked for any reason and was pulled over by a cop, In both America and Sweden, she would be arrested, but America would most likely charge her with driving with a suspended license and would serve her jail time. But in Sweden, they would most likely charge her, but they would focus more on her rehabilitation and help her with getting her doctor appointments, medication, or anything of the sort in order to help her and prevent her from putting herself or others at risk. 
Even though we may have covered a lot of information in this podcast and it may have gotten a little messy, we hope you understood our content and what point we were trying to get across about Sweden and America's judicial policymaking and decision making. In conclusion to our podcast, Sweden and America have a lot in common in policymaking and decision making. They each have their own differences, though. Many people would probably be very controversial about changing the American system in order to lower imprisonment rates, and that is definitely a huge reason on why nothing has been changing. It is because nobody can make a firm decision on what is best for America. Sweden's system works very well for them, and that's good, but that does not mean America would do well with that system also. I just want to thank everyone for listening to our podcast, Judicial Decision Making and Policy Making in both Sweden and America. And we hope you enjoyed everything we have talked about here today.